We, ex- we experience life, and all of us here are, are living, and how, how do we experience the life we live? We experience it in cycles, don't we? A, a sort of, we could feel like it's going around in circles, but somehow we know we're not going around in circles. We see this in the changing of the seasons, right? How many springs have we seen come and go, and now here we are enjoying another spring to be followed by another summer, and then another fall and winter, and then guess what, right? Before you know it, it's spring again. And we say, weren't we just here? Wasn't it just spring? We see this at the most basic level in the constant repetition of day and night. Day follows night, night follows day without fail. And even the lunar months, though we don't really pay attention to the moon anymore, but the moon waxes and the moon wanes, and then it starts the cycle all over again. And the people living by the ocean appreciate the reality of the moon, right? With the tides that come and go, like clockwork regularity. Yet even as we see these cycles of seasons and months and day and night, the Bible tells us that history is not going in circles. It's linear. It's, it's moving towards a goal. We're all familiar with the first verse of Genesis, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the fact that there was a definite beginning of creation, a beginning of history, already tells us that there's going to be an end. And not as in an apocalyptic end of the world like the world thinks about, but, but an end that is a wonderful goal, a wonderful consummation of all the history of the world that God's going to bring about. It started, it's moving, it will come to its goal and consummation. Now, if history is linear like that, if it's moving towards that goal, then what's the point of all those repeating cycles of the constant going around and around and around of days and months and seasons and years? I just want to encourage us with this, that day unfailingly follows night. And spring unfailingly follows winter should point you always to the perfect faithfulness of a God who never changes, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through him and says in Jeremiah 33, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, and it's like he's inviting you to say, Well, can you? Can you? If you can, then my covenant, so the day will not be at their appointed times, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, my faithfulness. If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the statutes for heaven and earth I have not established, then I would then I would reject the seed of Jacob and David my servant. Now, he talked about the statutes that he established for heaven and earth. So in other words, these are the statutes that are regulated by the earth revolving on its axis and then the earth orbiting around the sun and the moon orbiting around the earth. Those are his statutes for day and night. These are the cycles that even the plants and the animals observe. Like, you can't get away from those cycles. The plants and the animals even observe those things. It's not just humans. 
then what about weeks? Why, in the midst of all those repeating cycles determined by astronomy, why do we humans measure the passage of time by a seven-day week? Plants and animals do not observe weeks. Weeks are marked and determined by no natural law of the universe. And yet all of us here live our lives from day one experiencing the repeating cycles of day and night and months and seasons and years in terms of this very simple ever-repeating cycle of the week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. The ancient Babylonians explained the significance of seven days in terms of the seven observable moving celestial bodies in in the sky. So the sun and the moon and Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. The Romans then came along and they named the days of the week after their gods. Each of whom was associated with one of those seven planets. But they did not invent the seven-day week. They already had it. They were only trying to explain what they already practiced in terms of their worldview, in terms of their pagan worldview. So the question we ought to have, why do we do what we do? Why is it Sunday? If, we, if the seven-day week cannot be accounted for by any natural law of the universe, honestly, the seven-day week makes zero sense at all. Then where did it come from? Well, only the Bible answers this question in a way that explains why the seven-day week has been observed universally and perpetually throughout all of history. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, which Sabbath just means, it, it sounds like the word for seven in Hebrew, and it also is the word for to cease. So on the seventh day, he ceased. On the Sabbath day, he ceased from his creative activity and he made it holy. So the seven days of our week are not determined by any natural law. But brothers and sisters, they've been given to us. It's not like, oh, why did we even do it? Let's stop doing it, right? Because they've been given to us by God and woven, as it were, into the very warp and woof. That's the, that's the back and forth of, of the strands of a, of a piece of cloth, right? Woven right into the warp and woof of creation itself. Now then, the next question. Why did God do that? I mean, he gave us the moon, he gave us the sun, the earth's revolving, we've got everything going, right? You have all these cycles. Why then did he give us 
seven days and a week? And the answer is because he wanted to weave into your, your experience of time and of life on this earth the constant reminder to you that history has an end. And it has a goal towards which it's moving. You live that every, every day. When you get up and you say, it's Wednesday, you live the reality that history is moving towards a goal. And that goal and that end has been represented from the beginning by the seventh day, the day when God rested from all his work, which he had done. Now, when God rests, it's not we know because he's weary and worn out and tired. Neither is God's rest in the sense of he sits around idly doing nothing and inactive. The Bible tells us that God is always active. He never stopped working. He is even now sustaining the world and the universe we live in by the word of his power. He is sustaining you and the breath you take right at this very moment by the word of his power. God's rest, then, is to be understood, on the one hand, negatively, in that he ceased that specific activity of the previous six days. So he ceased that activity. But then, positively, when God rested, it was God saying, Ah, this is good. Because he looked at all that he had made, and it was very good. And so he took delight, and he took pleasure in it, and that was God's rest. Rest is not just, I'm, I'm sitting here lazing about not doing anything. Rest is the enjoyment of goodness. Now, it's one thing to say that God rested on the seventh day. But then why did God bother to bless the seventh day and sanctify it? Well, he did this not for his own sake. He did this for yours. And he does this so that we might see in the seventh day a picture of that glorious, eternal day of rest. See, we've talked about this before at Living Word, the reality that when God got to the seventh day and and rested, he didn't start the week all over again. He, he, he didn't start working again and creating another universe and then got to a seventh hour rest. Now I'll start and create another one. No, he created one and he was done and, and it was over. And, for, and ever since then, he's been resting and enjoying. But we, we, we have not got there yet. And so God patterned our week so that that seventh day would be a picture of his desire that we would, would come to share with him in the perfect enjoyment of his goodness and of his beauty and his, his wonder. And again, remember, this isn't just a negative idea. It's not like just God said, one day I'm going to invite you all to stop working and sit idly. No, one day we are going to fully celebrate and fully enjoy God's infinite goodness in himself and revealed in all that the wonders that he has made forever and ever and ever. I love that I can say that because God has revealed that to us. Now in the beginning, 
there wasn't any obstacle standing in the way of us entering that day of rest. There was nothing in the way. Imagine that. So all, all that was required for us to, to arrive there one day was that we just continue in that state of innocence and holiness in which God made us in the beginning. That's all, that's all we had to do. And as a sign of that requirement, and, and a way for us to, to show our willing submission to our Creator and our King, God put a very, very, very good tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Be careful. that God didn't make anything bad. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an incredibly wonderful and good tree. And then he commanded Adam that of that one good tree, out of, out of the many trees in the garden that were good for food, he must not eat. Because in the day he ate from it, he would surely die. And this was just a way of saying, hey, yeah, this, let's remember, what's the arrangement here, Adam? The arrangement is, I'm the king, and I've made you, and you're my son. I've made you in my image. And so that's the arrangement. And, and so by not eating of that tree, it was a joyful acknowledgement every day of, yes, I love this arrangement. This was not a joke that God played. This was not some un, kind of unfair, let's, let, let's see if he fails. No, this, was, this is the way things are. And how wonderful it should be to every day say, I want nothing to do with that really, really, really good tree. Because God is my king. Well, the Bible and the whole course of history testifies to what happened. Now, we've got to get this. We have to get this. And Romans 5, 12 says, Through one man, sin entered into the world. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So let's understand that. The guilt, the guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to you and to me. So that we are all, all of us now, born into this world guilty. This is what Paul says. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Even those who did not sin after the likeness of Adam's transgression. And so it's because of the guilt of this original sin that death comes even to infants such as we all once were. It's because of the guilt of this original sin that we are now, you and I, are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, all true good. We define good, and we say we're good, and we say we love good, and we want to do good. But the good that God requires is the good that Paul says none of us are. Wholly inclined to all evil. We give lip service so often to the fact that we are sinners, but the Bible's estimate of human nature, of your heart and of mine, goes far beyond what any of us are willing to admit in our own flesh. And so Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. 
If we define good in our own way, we might disagree, but then we are not really disagreeing. There is not even one. Not even one. And so it's because of the guilt of this original sin with which I was born into the world that it is guaranteed I will commit sin. Why is it guaranteed that every one of us here grows up and sins? So now we have to ask, in light of this, what happened to that original good goal of a good creation? Right? When God entered into a covenant with Israel, a special covenant with Israel, after the fall at Mount Sinai, he gave a sign for the covenant. He said, I'm going to make this covenant, and then I'm going to give a special sign indicating the whole covenant with you. And it was summed up in the fourth commandment. This is after, this is after we all became utterly corrupt in our sin. After that, God makes a covenant and gives them this sign. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day. Yeah, this week that has nothing to do with anything in the world. Right? Here it is again. And here it's been ever since the beginning. That seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Because why? In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And what do you see in those words? Do you see goodness? Do you see the graciousness and the mercy of God in giving us that commandment, that sign of the covenant? Because what is God saying? He's signaling to his people that in spite of the fall, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your sin and my sin, creation is still on that trajectory, on that path, moving toward that final day of rest for which it was made. But how can that be? Let us not take that for granted. Right? How can we who have rebelled against... What did we rebel against? We rebelled against God's what? His goodness. We didn't rebel against a tyrant or a slave master. We rebelled against the goodness of our creator and king. How then can we ever come to that day, which what is that day? It is the perfect enjoyment of his goodness. That's the goodness you rebelled against. And me. How then can we come to that day and enjoy his goodness forever and ever and ever? How can we who have brought death on ourselves even desire or want the very goodness you spurned, that I spurned? To enter that day now requires, whereas before there was no obstacle in the way, Now it requires that two obstacles be removed. Apparently insurmountable ones. One, sin. Sin. Not sin as something that's external to you, as merely an action you do sometimes, but sin as that which has wholly infected and corrupted every part of us. Mind, will, 
affections. How do you defeat that enemy? And death. If we are to come ourselves to that day, it requires now that a battle be waged. That both sin and death be overcome in a victory that is irreversible and everlasting. God committed himself to waging that battle the moment after the fall. And when God made that Sabbath keeping, when, when God made Sabbath keeping the sign of his covenant with his people, here's a really cool thing. Here's a really wonderful thing. He rooted it, not just in the pattern of, the, of creation, because that's where the Sabbath came from, right? That's where the seventh day and the whole week came from. But now he also rooted that seventh day in the emerging pattern of redemption. Because God created, then we fell, and now God is redeeming. And now the seventh day becomes a picture of the goal of creation and now also the goal of our redemption. So look what he does, Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day... Seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You shall remember that you were a slave. Now look, we're not going back to creation here. What are we doing? You shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So here's the thing. Even before we all fell in Adam, the seventh day represented the day that the Lord had made. That he had made for his creation to enter into. But after the fall, the seventh day represented more than ever before that day that only the Lord could make. Who can make such a day? Who could create such a day? Only the Lord could bring it about for for you and for me by his almighty power. Only the Lord. And so we see that the day of rest must now also be the day of victory. The day of rest must be the day of victory. The day of rest can only be entered now through a victory that God himself wins for us. Now, God delighted to hold before his people the promise of this eternal rest. He didn't want them to forget. He wanted them to know this is where we're going. This is, my, this is the goal of redemption. And he did that not just by giving them the seventh day, but by their inheritance of the land of Canaan. See, if you know the Bible story... You know that Israel was slaves in Egypt. And so if their life in Egypt was one of bondage and slavery and servitude, and if their life traveling through the wilderness was one of constant pulling up stakes, journeying to the next spot, wandering, then what was their life in Canaan going to be? Rest. And not in the sense of sitting around lazing and idling but in the sense of peace, security, a settled abundance, 
gladness and joy. Knowing in full the goodness of God. So Moses says to the Israelites, right before they're about to enter the land, flowing with milk, which means not literally flowing with milk, but that that the pastures and the hills are fertile enough to sustain flocks of goats, right? Because it was an agrarian culture. And and it was flowing with honey, not not really honey, but nectar, as as in the nectar from fruit trees that would grow abundantly in the land. Rest. See, that's the picture of rest. And where did those... Where did that milk and that nectar come from? The goodness of the God. So we read, you have not as yet come to the resting place. And the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. Now, you will cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit. And he will give you rest from all your enemies. Peace, security, safety. So that you live in security. Then it will be that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell. There you shall bring all that I am commanding you. Your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand. Right? Because why? I have provided for you so abundantly. And all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall be glad before the Lord your God. What's that? That's a picture. That was God's picture for them. Of the eternal rest. That's the goal of creation. And now the goal of redemption. But that's just the picture. Here's a picture of what every seventh day was promising and proclaiming. So in other words, they were living in the fulfillment of the seventh day. At least a picture of it. But for Israel to enjoy this rest in the land requires two things. Faith and obedience and victory over enemies are stronger than they are. So listen to what the Lord says in Psalm 95. Do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers tried me, they tested me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who wander in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall never enter into my rest. Now, what rest is God talking about there? He's talking about the temporal blessings of rest in the land of Canaan. Now that's a picture of another rest they probably weren't entering into. But the requirement for that rest wasn't the same as what's going to be required for our true eternal rest. For them them to enjoy rest in the land of Canaan, all that required was was that they have a basic national obedience to God's laws in the Ten Commandments. Don't kill people, don't commit adultery, don't steal your neighbor's property and possessions, and don't worship idols. You worship only the true God at the tabernacle or the temple. But because of their sinful hearts, even that proved to be impossible. So what did God do? God said, okay. And it wasn't plan B. This was always always God's plan. He appointed a king. And this king was to be now the instrument by which the seventh day comes to its fulfillment. Instead of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, because there's no king in Israel, God says, now I'm going to give you a king. And through that king, I'm going to bring you into my rest. He was to be the instrument by which they entered his rest forever. And so what does the Lord say to David, to Israel's king? Now, look at this. He says, I myself took you from the pasture. 
from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And so this theme of rest. We think of Jesus later jumping ahead of ourselves when he said, come to me and I will give you rest. The psalmist then celebrates. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will inhabit, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her holy ones will sing loudly for joy. There I will cause the horn of David, my king, to spring up. I prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon him his crown shall Blossom. And I just want to tell you, if we think of heaven as some ethereal, not real place, we've really got it wrong. Because in this description of Israel's life lived in Canaan under the rule of a righteous king is a picture of our eternal rest in the very presence of God. That's, that's the picture of it. And God painted that picture with the most tangible of his blessings. Unfortunately, what we do is we say, let me take the tangible blessings and not see in them the goodness of the creator God who bestows them upon me. By taking the blessings but spurning the one who gave them to us, we spurn his goodness. How many of us here today are spurning his goodness? When the kings were faithful, Israel experienced rest in the land. So if you are a faithful Israel, you sure hope for a faithful king. Because when you had a faithful king, you enjoyed rest. But not even the most faithful of the kings could give God's people the true rest. That was only being shadowed forth by this rest in the land of Canaan. Not even the most faithful of the kings could give God's people the rest that was the true fulfillment of every seventh day. And so when the kings were unfaithful, as they most often were, the blessings of peace, of abundance, of joy in the land were all forfeited. What Israel needed, brothers and sisters, was a new heart. Because what had sin done? It had corrupted every part of them. And it's corrupted all of us. What we need is a king who can defeat for us 
the enemy of sin. Remember, sin, not as something external to you. Sin, not as something that you do occasionally or even often. Not just that, but sin as that which has wholly infected and corrupted every part of us, my thinking, my desiring, and my choosing. What, what we need is a king who is able to defeat not just the enemy of our sin, but even the enemy of death itself, which because of our sin, has every rightful claim on you and on me. Now, here's another thing. You know, that's what Israel needed to enjoy life in the land of Canaan. But the reality is, once such a king has been given, and once such a victory as that has been won, then the seventh day of every seven-day week will have been fulfilled. You see. Then the rest that was only being pictured and shadowed forth in the land of Canaan will be fulfilled. Now we don't need Canaan anymore. Not the earthly one. Because that was the picture pointing to that eternal day, that seventh day, that ultimate day of rest and of victory that our king wins for us and then calls us up into. Then not only Jews, but Gentiles too are going to enter that day of victory and that day of rest, this day that God has made and that only God can make. The prophet Isaiah foretold this day. Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Then my people will live in a peaceful abode and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Now what's happened then to the seventh day? Because it's not Saturday today, is it? Why do the people of God no longer observe the seventh day? Why are we no longer living in Canaan as the people of God, contained within the borders of an earthly Canaan? And the answer is this, brothers and sisters, because these things have been fulfilled in the day of victory and of rest that Jesus purchased for us by his death and resurrection. Here's the gospel, which is what every Easter is about. On the cross, Jesus bore the full curse of the law for all of us corrupted sinners who through faith are in covenant union with him. See, by faith in him, we are brought into union with Christ so that so that our sins are laid upon him and he takes the curse of those sins in our place 
But that's not all. In his resurrection from the grave, he made available to you and to me the infinite merits of his perfect obedience. He took the curse of our sin. He made available the blessings of his obedience. And so the Apostle Paul says, He was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. Not only that, through our covenant union with him, with Christ, not only are we fully pardoned, fully clothed and covered in his obedience, but we're new creations. We're being transformed from the innermost part of our souls, from the inside out. Oh, this is what we needed. And so the Apostle Paul also says, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then, it gets even better. We are pardoned. We are clothed in righteousness. We are made new from the inside out until one day the resurrection life that's already at work in you will be fully revealed in the resurrection of our bodies on the day when death is wholly swallowed up in victory. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. He has waged the war with sin and death and conquered And so we read in Luke's gospel. Listen to Luke. Joseph took the body of Jesus down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut out into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and beheld the tomb and how his body was laid. Then after they returned, they prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, the seventh day, they rested according to the commandment, not knowing what was about to come. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. It was on the day following the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what did that symbolize for us? What did that mean now? Do we see? It means that the goal of creation, the goal of redemption that God had been working out since day one after the fall is now fulfilled in this day. And this day that the Lord has made, in this day of victory and of rest and of the unceasing enjoyment of the goodness of God lavished upon us through his Son, 
And so we celebrate this day that the Lord has made, not just on Easter Sunday, and that's the beauty of it. We are no more committed to Easter Sunday than we are to any other Sunday that comes or goes. Every Sunday for the church is Resurrection Sunday. Because every Sunday is the first day of a new week. Every Sunday is a reminder to us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ of the victory of the rest into which we have entered. And not only that we have entered into already, but now because we have tasted of it, we see its final consummation coming in that day of rest when our Lord returns. Truly, this is the day which only the Lord could make and which he has made for us. So I want to ask, have you entered this rest? And I always say, again, this is for the Christians. This is for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is for you who have not. Have you entered this rest through faith in Jesus? Do you know with a certainty that your sins have been pardoned? Do you know? Have you been clothed in his righteousness? Has his obedience been given to you? Do you know that? And have you been raised up to walk not in the old manner, but to walk now with him in newness of life? Have you? And now are you looking forward? Are you looking forward with confident expectation to the resurrection of the body when he appears? To put it simply, do you know the joy of this day that the Lord has made? You can. Through faith in the risen king. In the Old Testament, after the Lord had given to his people a victory in battle, what they would do is they would would process back to Jerusalem with the king riding at their head. You can imagine the joy of that procession. There was the threat of defeat, of of death, of destruction. But a victory has been won by the provision of God. And now the king rides back with his people. He rides back at their head, processing to Jerusalem. They come to the gates of the city. We see a picture of that in 2 Chronicles 20. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. And every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with gladness. For the Lord had made them glad over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, and trumpets to the house of the Lord, 
And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Now we know now, we see in that. Whenever we read that again, we'll see that in that jubilant picture of this victorious king returning to Jerusalem, we see it fulfilled where? Jesus, our king, risen from the dead, ascended victorious into the heavenly Jerusalem, passing through its gates. And as the apostle says, leading us all in triumphal procession. And so it's by that victory, the goal of creation and of redemption is achieved. It's this day of victory that has ushered us into God's eternal day of rest. A rest that, thank God, is not inactivity, but simply the celebration and enjoyment to the full of his goodness, which we no longer spurn, but enjoy fully forever. And ever, and ever. The psalmist describes this day of victory and this day of rest from the perspective of one being led along in that triumphal procession. Okay, and this is the conclusion. I'll read this passage, and the choir is going to come and sing. So, so get see this picture. The psalmist says, "Let me describe this day of rest, this day of victory, and I'm going to describe it as though as though I'm the one being led along in the king's procession, returning victorious from battle to enter Jerusalem to the rest that God has given His people." And this becomes now a picture for our being led along in the procession of our victorious risen king. And so we say, with the psalmist, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you. For you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone, who is the king in Zion, the stone, which the builders rejected, which we see in the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone, which we see in his resurrection and triumph over sin and death. This is from the Lord. It is marvelous. In our eyes. And then the psalmist concludes. This is the day. Which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Let us truly rejoice. And be glad. In that day. You'll have a moment. You'll have an opportunity to rejoice and be glad in it together. But first I'll invite the choir to come up. And we'll sing together of this day.